Hello, consumers of digital media. This is Tim Barnes, host of WBEZ's It's All True podcast. Episodes typically start off with a quick headline from a famous person, but since this is the final episode of season three, I thought I'd kick it off with some good news. If you're in Chicago, there's going to be a live recording of the It's All True podcast February 25th at the Annoyance Theater. Special guests Maz Jabrani, Nathan Rabin, Lily Kay, and Brian Babylon will perform and tell stories. Tickets are only $10 and can be purchased at theannoyance.com. All right, let's get this party started. Hello, Homo sapiens. This is WBEZ's It's All True podcast, powered by America's second favorite source for fake news, thewhiskeyjournal.com. I'm your host, Tim Barnes, and if you've been paying any attention, you'd already know that. In each episode, I chat with a guest and then ask them to reveal a funny, personal, true story. This week's guest is comedian and Chicago native John Roy. We talk about his humble beginnings. My first waiter job was in Evanston in a place called the Stir Fire Grill, uh, where one of my regulars, weirdly enough, was um, Harold Ramis. What the comedy world was like when he started... We didn't have a lot of role models for that. You know, they had Chris Rock and like, oh, that guy. And like Mitch Hedberg, <laughs> oh, there's one. You know, but it was really like sifting through a lot of people doing pretty standard, boring stuff. And he tells a truly funny story. He has a pizza on the bed. And I don't mean that there's a pizza in a box on the bed. I mean, there's a pizza on the bed. <laughs> but before we dive in, let's listen to him tell some jokes. I like living in L.A., though. I really do. It's cool. It's a diverse city, so it's weird when you still hear racist nonsense. And you still do, but it's like a surprise. Like, two white guys were behind me in the mall, and one of them goes, There's so many Mexicans in this city, it might as well just be a Mexican city. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, because it was. (laughs) Until 1847, when we conquered it. If you don't want a city full of Mexicans, don't conquer one. We took the whole Southwest from Mexico. We even left their name in one of the states. We called it New Mexico. (laughs) You know what the new part was? Us. (laughs) It's not like they left when they saw us coming. They just let us switch the flags, pretty much. They were like, we still work here, right? (laughs) Some people don't get that joke, though. (laughs) For real. They come up to me after the show, and they're like, I like when you made fun of Mexicans. I'm like, I didn't. (laughs) One of us is a moron. (laughs) That was comedian John Roy on Conan. I've always watched Conan O'Brien religiously, and when I moved to Chicago, John Roy had the glow of television radiating around him because I had just watched him on the show. And so when I talked to him, my first question was, who are some of the people that you had that, that had that glow to Awestruck? you? Awestruck? Yeah. Well, there, was, there weren't, like, Chicago, people don't get how weak the Chicago stand-up scene was when I started. <laughs> it was 1997. Stand-up was nowhere to be found in the pop culture. Like, it imploded in the early 90s. And Chris Rock had, had just done Bring the Pain, which was, like, the first special that anyone my age cared about at all forever <laughs> from the time they were born. Like, they liked Delirious when they were 12, and then they, like, Bring the Pain in 1996. <laughs> and in between that, they didn't give one f- about stand-up comedy. Women keep platonic friends forever. Why? Because you never know. 
That's right. They give her the girlfriends every six months. What happened to Pam? She thinks she cute. <laughs> but they keep them platonic friends forever. Why? Because you never know. <laughs> what happened to Carol? I can't hang with her. But they keep them platonic friends forever. Why? Because you never know. So... You had a city that was wired for improv, and it still sort of is, except that now the stand-up is, is undeniable. Like, you know, I was just in the new Improv Olympic facility, and they had stand-up going on there. And yeah. that would, people's eyes would have bled if you told them, <laughs> in, if you told a group of improvisers in 1999 that in 2015, not only would Improv Olympic have a stand-up open mic in the building, <laughs> Second City would have a f- Comedy club, yeah. Just a number of comedy clubs there are, yeah. In the Second City building, that would be like telling him that would be like telling a Soviet communist that we would have a McDonald's in the Kremlin building. Like that's how crazy that sounded. Because stand-ups were puds. Like they, they, we thought they thought of us as like just you know evening at the Improv, sleeves pushed up, oh, yeah, flight from LA to New York. I mean, can you believe it? Like, like that was like all it was. So the only person that we had was uh, Dwayne Kennedy. Uh, he was just starting to change his act and become political he had grown his dreads out he had you know he wasn't the guy who did the Seinfeld cameo anymore but uh and he you know he had yet to do Letterman and and you know write for all the TV shows and stuff but he was the only guy in Chicago that was way more accomplished than we were and had been on TV and was doing a clearly better kind of comedy. Uh, you know, you talk to people and, you know, you talk to them. You might say some painful things, but that's how you get the ball rolling, right? Like, you could say, like, hey, white man. <laughs> How come you're so tense and afraid? <laughs> then he could say, hey, black man, how'd you get into my apartment? You know what I mean? Dwayne was both older than us, but also doing the kind of comedy that we, by we, I mean, you know, myself, Mick Betancourt, uh, Kyle Kinane, Matt Bronger, you know, all that early group of, of Chicago stand-ups. That's, uh, you know, he was the guy that we patterned everything after. Do you see yourself as someone who's in between that sort of alt-comedy and, what is the term, mainstream? I don't know. what I did. There was nowhere to go. Like, like <laughs> alt-comedy in Chicago, alt-comedy meant nothing back then. I mean, like... <laughs> it just it, meant that you you find a way to get up. Yeah, I, I feel like alt-comedy what was basically what that's describing is who was in the seats, who the audience <laughs> members were. You know, like the alternative comedy scene, I feel, rather than describing what goes on on stage, which wasn't any weirder than anything that had gone on on any other stage, it was that the audience was a smart, somewhat liberal group of people that wanted, you know, to And that be term hipster didn't bit. exist at that point yet. Well, it, it did, but from the 50s. You know what I mean? Like, what's <laughs> yeah, so yeah. funny is that the hipster thing is the same word that we've been kicking around <laughs> yeah, for, for people <laughs> since 1952. Like, see, that cat's a real hipster, man. He knows what to get, marijuana cigarettes. <laughs> and he likes jazz. <laughs> you know, like that's, yeah. But you know what? That describes the same guy today. <laughs> he, might, uh, he, might, uh, he might like, you know, uh, Flying Lotus instead of jazz. With yeah, yeah. Coltrane's nephew, so. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it's uh, it's kind of funny that the same term has gotten recycled for a new group of people. But there were those people, but they weren't going to comedy. Like that's my point. <laughs> what the alternative thing did is brought those people back, and I feel like those people were a big part of comedy in the fifties and sixties. Pryor and Carlin getting started, you know, uh, Woody Allen in in all that. But then when Dice Man started screaming about it's and Eddie Murphy screaming about. And they're all yeah. hating on women. And I feel like that those liberal 
intellectual types kind of recoiled and they left stand up uh, in in the eighties. And you had people like Bill Hicks out there, but they didn't have a big audience. And I feel like the kind of people that would have enjoyed the the prior stuff, they were not watching stand up anymore because it had become this very uh, homophobic, misogynistic thing that was aimed more at uh, you know dummies, I think, than, <laughs> than anybody else. Do you find yourself giving people a forewarning before they watch an old Eddie Murphy special? Like well, this was a different time period. That was my favorite. I mean, nobody. I'm 40. There's not a 30 to 50 year old who can't tell you that raw and delirious were the the funniest things they had ever seen at that moment but it's undeniable that <laughs> none of it is acceptable today yeah. i mean the opening joke it's like the birth of a nation yeah of, it is of, it's, <laughs> it, the opening joke of eddie murphy delirious is it's be looking at my ass it scare me i think is is yeah. the word he uses what, and he doesn't. There's no ironic. The turn he's using the word the way just like <laughs> f- them, f- those guys. You know what I mean? Like it has no. Yeah. It's there's nothing redeeming about the bit at all. Like and then it, he has not gotten out of his system in in raw. The first bit it's called f- it's revisited. Like you know what? I just I haven't said enough uh. about. F- and I think I, I need to, to punish them and ridicule them more. I feel like with any art form, stand-up specifically, there's that process of it starts off as a hobby. Would you say stand-up start off as a sort of hobby for you? Well, well it's funny that we're in this building because we're recording as a Navy Pier. This is my last day job was. I, I was a waiter <laughs> at Charlie's Ale House, uh, you know, slinging mashed potatoes to kids and Germans. Uh, we had <laughs> no regulars, so it didn't matter how good a waiter you were. They were getting on a plane tomorrow back to Ohio. Uh, but, uh yeah, I, it was a hobby. I didn't know what I was doing. I graduated from Loyola. I had a degree in English that I didn't really know what to do with. <laughs> I was in my third band that wasn't really What working. kind of band? Uh, that band was sort of a weird hodgepodge of uh, funk, or as white people would play funk, uh, <laughs> plus kind of hippie jam band music, plus yeah. kind of like stereo lab and spiritualized indie rock like it didn't everybody in the band wrote songs <laughs> and nobody really listened to the same shit. so you just had this kind of uh robot that changed direction depending on who was piloting it <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and also the robot two of the arms were broken yeah we weren't very good at our instruments uh my um my old joke about that band was we were like a greek an ancient Greek monster with the head of a funk band and the body of a rock band and the talent of five stoners who didn't know how to play their instruments. <laughs> so I was in that band. I was waiting tables. Uh, my first waiter job was in Evanston at a place called the Stir Fire Grill, uh, where one of my regulars, weirdly enough, was um, Harold Ramis would come in Whoa. all the time. He lived in, in that area. And I would, it was everything, I would wait on him every day, he's one of my heroes, and it was everything I could not to be like, I'm at level two improv and improvolific, I write comedy sketches, I'm like you. Like, I just was like, it was, I never said it, but I did get to see him, I did the Just for Last Festival, I was at the Vic, opening for Martin Short in 2009, and Ramis saw the show, and then came down in the green room and said, you were really funny, I'm like, I used to serve you stir fry. Uh, did he remember yeah. you? Uh, no. But he go, well, why would he? Yeah, oh, yeah. oh, you were the guy who brought the lemonade. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember you. You, and, uh, you were slow, and you didn't get my order right all the time. But might I say smart move for not telling him that, oh, right? Oh, I couldn't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but I did in the moment. I said, you know, I used to okay. wait at tables, and he goes, well, now you're here. And I'm like, okay, well, I could die now. I don't really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Egon just told me I was funny. But what was the process for taking it seriously? That's, that's... I always took it seriously. It was a hobby, but I always thought I could do it. I don't really know why. I don't. 
I just always thought that I could probably do this, like, when I started. I didn't know that. And there's a big difference in your head between going, I am going to make it and <laughs> I might make it, uh-huh. you know? But I thought that if I, I – I did my first open – my friend Mick Betancourt was a, uh, doing open mic. He's now a big TV writer and stand-up in his own right. But uh, he's like, you got – you know, your band sucks, you're funny, you should come to stand up with me. I'm like, okay, give me five minutes to write a thing. And I went to, uh, I remember writing it, I was on a, my final hour in Loyola, I was taking theater in Chicago, so we watched some play, and then I went to Delilah's and wrote my set out, and then uh, <laughs> I went over, to, it was at a bar near DePaul, and I did my first stand-up set, and it did fine. It did not do great, and the jokes were idiotic, but they got laughs. <laughs> And uh, I then was like, you know, that didn't go bad. And I think within, I was working within a year and a half, I was emceeing at Zany's. Because as I said, there's not a lot of people doing it. Like if you go on comedyofchicago.com, there's 11 open mics on a Monday. There's 15 independent shows. There's six comedy clubs in the city. None of that existed. (laughs) There was one comedy club in the city. There was one booked independent room, one bi-weekly booked independent room, and about three open mics. The end. And if there were 14 people on an open mic list, you were like, oh my God, look at all the people. It ceased being a hobby pretty quick for me when I got a check. You know, when you get your first check at, after it, like, even though it's still a hobby, you're like, well, it's a hobby that makes money. What's up? Good to be here. Uh, I play a lot of video games, and I actually learned something about myself playing video games last week, because I went ball when I was 23. And I always used to tell myself that that didn't bother me anymore, that I was over it. That's what I would tell myself. (laughs) Then I was making my guy at the beginning of a video game. (laughs) And I realized that every time I've ever done that, I've given him hair. (laughs) And I could have made me. I'm usually the default setting. (laughs) I'm going to say something right now that might sound a little crazy. And I'm I'm at... All right. I'm asking because I want to know if people have ever said this to you before. When I, <laughs> when I first saw you on TV, I thought you were black. What? I thought you were black. You thought I thought I you were black. like Mariah Carey level of black. Well, I have, I mean, this is, there's no other way to get into this, but I have big <laughs> lips. I, I do. And I shave my head. And a lot of my jokes uh, are about racism. <laughs> But I am I am not black. Okay. Uh, but have you ever heard that before? Uh, yeah. Well, I remember I went to Evanston High School, which was half black and half white. So I would have black kids talk about my lips and say, "You black? That's the black." <laughs> yeah, because my like, mom they swears would say that all the time. My like, mom swears that Wolf Blitzer is black. <laughs> <laughs> if he's black, he is the whitest black man that's ever lived. Uh, but yeah, people. Uh, there were black kids in my school that would be like, "Oh, you got some black in you. Look at them lips. You got black in you." <laughs> I'm like, I as Unless people have been being very, very withholding of information in my family tree. Uh, who knows what the hell happened down in Missouri? <laughs> but uh, as far as I know, I am not black. We'll be right back with more It's All True after the break. And when we return, you'll hear John Roy's funny personal true story. What's it about? Here's a clip. This guy, long hair, looked like uh, if Anthony Kiedis, like... Stopped eating for like 10 days and got back on the heroin. Like, that's what this guy looked like. We get to his hotel room, and I got to drive him around because he's got a DUI. You won't want to miss it. More John Roy after the break.
This is Don Hall. And I'm Tyler Green. We are the hosts of WBEZ's arts podcast, General Admission. We talk to artists of all stripes, including cool cats like the legendary performance artist Holly Hughes, HBO's looking star Raul Castillo, and graphic novel illustrator Jill Thompson. We think the world needs an art podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously while also asking tough questions. That's not possible, you say? We think not. To decide for yourself, check us out at wbez.org slash general admission. Hello, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Tim Barnes, and in each episode, I ask a guest to reveal a headline for a funny personal true story. This week's guest is comedian and host of the Don't Ever Change podcast, John Roy. Here's his headline. Diminutive white man in over his head. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't really understand just how uh, how nasty the the coming up part of stand up is. Uh, they have an idea. They see somebody on Conan, like like you said, and they're like, "Ooh, a TV man!" Please welcome the very funny John Roy, everybody. John Roy. But every comedian, no matter what act you're doing, has to go up through a system of cash bars and insanity. And uh, just to give you an, uh, one illustrative story of just what the nuts and bolts, grimy pipes world <laughs> of stand-up is, uh, I was doing a show well, maybe five years in, four years in, and you get all your feature gigs uh, when you're in the Midwest. Most of the feature stuff is booked by a company called Funny Business. And uh, <laughs> back then, you know, you didn't have really, people weren't emailing. It existed, but these old comedy club owners were like, that, I'm going to do things the old-fashioned way. So it's very much a world of sending out VHS tapes and waiting <laughs> By the phone, and if you got someone on the phone, you'd get like six weeks of work in a row. So I, I get a bunch of work, and it's all in hotel bars in the Midwest. Ah. That's where a lot of my gigs were. So you'd go to Wausau, Wisconsin. They would, you'd be in a Best Western. They'd be mad that somebody can took the the Red Wings game off, and then uh, you know they'd stare at you and. Oh, one one time there was a joke contest that the audience did before you got to go up to win a picture. So you got so they all think there. they're comedians. Oh yeah, and they all have lots of interesting thoughts about <laughs> Japanese people and Arabs <laughs> oh, that you got to uh, hear <laughs> in, in the room. Oh okay, now oh now I do comedy. You know, so horrible gig after horrible gig. Some of the gigs were great. But you also had to do these one-nighters and these bars. <laughs> so then there would be special instructions when you were the feature. They'd be like, well, this gig, you got to drive the headliner around because he has a DUI. This gig, you got to, you know, like all these weird, this gig, go to the other Best Western. There's two. You're going to want to go to the first one, but it's the <laughs> second one. So you had all these weird instructions. You'd write them all down. So I had a gig at a bar called uh, Country Land, I think it was. It was in, in Urbana. Huh. In the middle of a woods. It was a country bar in a forest <laughs> in Urbana, Illinois. And the, the instructions literally were, you're going to drive deep into the forest about 30 minutes. When you finally think there's no way that you can be going the right way and that you're definitely lost, go another 10 minutes and you'll see the place. I'm like, well, when you're, that's a lot of subjective shit on my part like when do, it's all about when i think i'm lost like what what is a schrodinger's direction it's like what the f-? and so did you get I, to that point uh yeah i did i got but first i had to pick up the the uh the headliner this guy long hair looked like uh if anthony Kiedis like stopped eating for like 10 days and got back on the heroin like that's what this guy looked like we get to his hotel room, and I gotta drive him around because he's got a DUI. We get to the hotel room, 
he has a pizza on the bed. And I don't mean that there's a pizza in a box on the bed. I mean there's a pizza on the bed. <laughs> and then there's napkins and hot sauce on a bed in a red roof inn. He's putting his shirt on and he goes, there's pizza on the bed if you want some. Like, yeah, I'm going to not eat that. That's the fine. weirdest thing I've ever yeah, heard Yeah, just of. eating pizza off the bed, off the sheets. <laughs> You've seen those black light specials. Well, now that's on your pizza. Yeah. So I'm, I get him in the car. We drive. 30 minutes in the woods, and I'm like, this has got it. And he's like, I don't think this is it, man. I'm like, okay, but then that's good. That means that we're almost there. <laughs> sure enough, 10 more minutes into this dark forest, and we find this country bar in the middle of nowhere. There's a lot of people there. For some reason, there's about 120 students and other wise people at this country bar. I do my act. It goes okay. His act consists of him doing a regular style joke and then singing a snippet of a rock song for no reason. So he'll do <laughs> joke, 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 joke. I am smelling like a rock Never an explanation why he does a rock song part. They don't respond to it. It's just this odd rock song in the middle of a comedy act. It's a great way to fill time. Well, yeah, I guess if you got 30 minutes and you're trying to do 45, why not sing a little Nirvana in there? People like Nirvana. So he does his act. He gets off stage. I get paid by the country bar guy. And then I I meet these girls that are going to take me to the other side of town. And uh, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll go, I'll go with you guys. And right around that moment, I get stopped in the doorway by the club owner and this massive, he looks like a frat guy, but he's like a <laughs> frat guy that's been lifting since he was four. He's like a big mother <laughs> And he goes, uh, where's And I go, hey, man, I, I don't know. I'm just going to meet these girls and we're going to go to go to Champagne. He goes, where's and I go, I, I don't know, man. I just drove him here because a club owner told me to drive him here. And the guy goes, I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm like, oh, well, I hope not. Uh, what? And then he goes, took $350 worth of my friend's and now we can't find him. And immediately I go, you gave $350 of cocaine to that man? And what, what made you, what was it that made you decide he was a trustworthy customer? Was it the second crazy rock song that didn't make any sense in the middle of his comedy act? Or was it, was it the general look of the man that made you thought this might be a responsible dr- Or the fact that I drove him here. Which of the things made you decide that that was a good idea? He goes, well, and now we can't find him. I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you, man. Uh, And the guy finally holds my chest for a little while while he's looking at my face, and I guess he used whatever CSI skills he has to realize (laughs) that I didn't have anything to do with it. But here's, And so I left, but here's my point. We're in the middle of the woods. Where the f*** did he go? (laughs) He took the coke, fine. He runs out the door and goes where? He doesn't know anybody. There's nobody... He's out there in the middle of the woods like Coke Squatch, just f***ing <laughs> under a tree somewhere, f***ing staring at owls. Like, I mean, the guy had to have gone just into the forest with $350 worth of cocaine. Uh, and then I never heard from him again. I went back and did the next one-nighter. And legend uh, has it, every now and then, yeah, when you, you walk through the woods. If you get to the point of the woods where you're pretty sure you lost. You'll hear a Nirvana song. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> So that's a story. I don't know yeah. exactly what the point of it all is, except <laughs> that comedy, as Steve Martin once said, isn't pretty. <laughs>
that's the show. Big thanks to John Roy for stopping by. If you'd like more updates on him, follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is John Roy Comedy. He also has a podcast called Don't Ever Change. We uh, interview comedians and funny people about what they were like in high school. So be sure to check that out. And of course, if you'd like more updates on this show and other wonderful WBEZ podcasts, visit wbez.org slash podcasts. It's All True is a production of WBEZ Chicago and The Whiskey Journal. The show is produced by me, I, myself, Iris Lynn, Joe Dassault, and me, Tim Barnes. If you dig the show, please tell people about it and subscribe on iTunes. It's a big help and it means a lot. My Twitter handle is TimBarnes451 and follow the show at All True Podcast. This is Tim Barnes signing off saying, I believe in you. Thank you.